Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Are we scared yet? Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Wednesday, October 27th, 2021, and although we are beginning the show in a treehouse of horror... We're going to go back a bit and return to a tree fort. Tree fort number nine, the fall edition, and we'll do so with a fox, the fantastic Emily Fox. Emily Fox hosts and produces KEXP's music interview show, Sound and Vision, which airs Saturdays from 7.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. on the FM dial in Seattle at 90.3 as well as on the internets at kexp.org. Sound and Vision uses interviews, artistry, commentary, insight, and conversation to tell broader stories through music and illustrate why music and art matter. Contributors include local, national, and international artists and musicians, community members, and advocates, KEXP DJs and staff, and many others. The program aims to provide a platform for diverse creative and artistic communities not currently represented on the dial, with space to share and discuss topics and insight important to their communities. Music and storytelling is Emily's passion, and prior to working at KEXP, she was a host, producer, and reporter at Michigan Radio, WKAR, and Seattle's KUOW. It is an honor and a special Halloween treat to be hosting her today. How are you doing this morning, Emily? Good. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> you bet. Um, so I I noticed, um, I love all things KEXP, but I noticed that you tweeted um, out that you were at Tree Fort, which was fun, and Lake Street Drive, the night number one at Tree Fort, really made an impression. So Tell me, was this your first tree fort? Yeah, it was. Um, I I had been to Boise for the first time. It was not this not this tree fort, but the year before, um, when we were like in the heat of the pandemic. I was like, how can I go somewhere and drive somewhere from the Seattle region? And I went to Boise for the first time, uh, fall of 2020. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the perfect place to go in the fall because it's still sunny. It's still warm while like the rain takes over Seattle and makes everything super dark. It's like, you can do the last little punch of summertime. If you go to Boise in the fall. And then I saw that tree fort had been rescheduled to the fall of 2021. And, um, KEXP partners um, with Tree Fort. Um, I actually was on a panel uh, at Tree Fort talking about careers in the music industry. And so I got brought down to kind of represent KEXP and a lot of other KEXP folks were there as well. I think we probably had, I don't know, 10 staff members um, that showed up um, because we partner with them. So yeah, it was my first Tree Fort. And I got to say, I was incredibly impressed with um, just COVID protocols, like you know, you had to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test and people were wearing masks. And I mean, this is the first time like myself and a lot of KEXP staff, like actually went to a music festival in, I don't know, two years or so. So 
that was awesome. And the first night that I showed up, um, we kind of, my partner and I kind of made a, a full week out of it where, you know, we started from, you know, obviously our home in Western Washington and drove down, went to Hood River, went to Boise and then ended up, uh, no, sorry, we went to Bend and then Boise. Um, and so we made a whole week out of it and then ended up, um, you know, in Boise for Tree Fort. I think that Wednesday that things started and I got to, we rolled up just in time to see um, my favorite band, Lake Street Dive. Um, I actually have a degree in music and I'm a singer. It's been a long time since I've sung publicly, but I love the main singer's voice of Lake Street die of Rachel Price. Um, and I'm also a huge fan of Bonnie Raitt. I grew up kind of singing some of her music and then Lake Street Dive did a cover of Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. And I just totally just showed up, had a drink, started crying in that set and was like, all right, we have arrived. <laughs> so you were acting in a, an official capacity a, a bit. Um, did you did you do any research or was it just, you just kind of took it one day at a time and, and just let it open to you? Yeah. A lot of people were like, are you going to show up and do a bunch of interviews? And no, I mean like, you know, tree fort was able to give us tickets. I mean, I, I, I think it was, was it Saturday morning or Friday morning? I sat on a panel. So I only, the only thing I really had to do in an official capacity was, you know, sit on a panel for an hour talking about, you know, the, the opportunities to, you know, get in the music career. I was on a panel with some people that do music sync, which means like they find the music uh, to put in like video games or movies or TV shows or ads. And um, someone else who helped organize the festival was there. Um, and then there was me talking about, you know, just music journalism. So that was kind of my official capacity, but otherwise it was really just um, taking in tree fort. And, um, the other cool thing about tree fort is, I mean, gosh, there was 400 artists on in 40 venues <laughs> for those few days. And a lot of those artists were from Seattle. So it was really cool because I've only been working for KEXP since, um, early 2019. Um, I, I was in Seattle since, uh, 2016, but when I first moved to Seattle, I was, um, a, a kind of a, a news host. I, I hosted, um, the, um, local version of, of the NPR show morning edition for KUOW. So I had to get up at 3 AM every morning to be at work by four, to be live on air by five. So when I first moved to Seattle, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to see live music um, because I had to wake up so early and go to bed so early. And so when I first started working for KEXP, like I, I knew a little bit about the local music scene, but I hadn't fully experienced it. And then COVID hit, you know, like a year later. And so I didn't get a lot of opportunity to see, to see those local music, but then I went to Tree Fort and so many Seattle bands were there. And so it was also an opportunity to me, for me to really see so many Seattle bands in one place that happened to not even be Seattle. So that was cool for me to be able to really be able to see everyone, people that I hear about all the time through my work at KEXP and it all happened to be in Boise. Can you speak about some of the ones that you were happy to see? Yeah. So, um, well, Chong the Nomad uh, played the main stage. Um, she played quite a few times during the festival, but she's been massive uh, coming out of Seattle. I think she just, you know, she did something for like Singapore Airlines and she's, um, I think, done some music for, um, is it Modern Love, the Netflix series? 
Um, and she just kind of blew up. Um, and I know we, I've had some people, uh, freelancers for my show, um, do a feature on her and she's just awesome. And she played the main stage and just did this thing where she starts like beatboxing into like a microphone, no beatboxing through a harmonica into her microphone, which I thought was amazing. (laughs) So she was there. Um, Smoky Brights um, is a band in Seattle that I hadn't get, gotten a chance to see. And my, we saw them, my partner was with me and like one of their songs is now on like full repeat uh, in our house since then. But, you know, we had people like Trace Leches, who I believe has been on your show <laughs> before. Yeah. Um, and we also had the Black Tones there, Shana Shepard. Um, gosh, there were so many Seattle bands. I can't even list them off the top of my head. Um, I think someone said, Oh, Delvon Lamar organ trio. I saw them one of the first nights. Um, and they're great. Um, so Delvon Lamar organ trio is, is, um, there's a guitarist, a drummer, and then, um, Delvon Lamar who plays organ. And it was really cool to see him play, you know, be able to play keys. And then he plays like the bass with his feet on the organ, which was really, really cool. Um, so yeah, there, I think, yeah, I think someone said, like, I, I meant, I think I made a mentioned, you know, 20, 20 Seattle bands there. So that was, that was really, really cool. The interesting thing is because, you know, um, they, these people are kind of celebrities in, in some way because uh, you guys play them so much on the air. And so what's so fascinating to me is when you see them just walking around Boise between, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I know that guy. Uh, tell me about getting to know the footprint as far as like, so you said you came in 2020 in the fall just as, as a tourist to visit. But as far as like getting to know the, the sh- you know, the 400 bands have to play somewhere. And so they're, they're at different bars and clubs all over downtown. What was it like the learning curve for getting to know these different places where the artists are playing? Oh, that was like, I think that was like half of the fun of Tree Fort is be- like, I, you know, when, when I went to Boise in the fall of 2020, it was mostly like, <laughs> it was a funny story because it was the pandemic and everyone wanted to buy a bike <laughs> and I, and I wanted to buy a mountain bike, but the closest mountain bike to where I lived was in Boise. <laughs> so we oh. <laughs> drove all the way to Boise to, to buy a mountain bike. And then we went mountain biking and, you know, went along the river trail. And so I kind of got to see a lot of the outskirts of the city, um, you know, the, the mountain biking, you know, trails and stuff like that when I first came. And so this was the first time that I really got to spend a lot of time downtown and I loved how walkable everything was. And I was just amazed for a a city that is walkable to have so many venues, like half the fun was just going around at night and being like, how many venues can we see, you know, within four hours or whatever, and just running, you know, seeing like 20 minutes, 20 minutes of the set, 20 minutes of that set, and just going to all these different venues around town. Um, I thought, you know, the chorus shine was like a total gem, (laughs) um, you know, which is, you know, they had a little stage there and, you know, a lot of the different like bars were really, really cool. I wish I knew all the names on the top of my head, but, and, and then of course the weather was like 85 degrees during the day. And so you could walk around at night, like where I'm from in Western Washington, once the sun goes down, the temperature drops like 20 degrees. And so for it to be nighttime and not feel like you need to totally layer up was super nice. Um, but yeah, seeing, um, that everything was walkable and that there were so many venues and such 
such a, you know, small footprint was, was really amazing to see. Um, and then, you know, also to, to talk to some of the venue organizers and just to hear how passionate they are about, uh, local music, um, and just how passionate they are about Boise was just like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is how event like tree fort happens is to have some really passionate people, but also have the infrastructure to be able to put on a festival like this. Well, you mentioned safety. And so that was definitely on my mind. I wasn't certain if we should be doing this or not, but enough time has passed. And I don't know that I've heard of any like, uh, breakthrough cases from tree fort. So I think all in all, you know, the safety precautions worked and everyone was really respectful, but you know, what was your thought process before coming to Idaho, you know, which is having its own issues right now? Did you guys research that a little bit? And, you know, was there discussions about how safe really is this festival festival going to be? Yeah. I mean, you know, Seattle and, and KEXP is very like, you know, COVID protocol and safety is like very high on our list. And, you know, I think everyone at KXP follows the New York Times map that shows you where the hotspots are. And you live before we went like <laughs> Idaho is like red on fire, you know, yes, yes. Um, I think I just saw something where it's like 49th in the nation, you know, in terms of pe- folks who have gotten vaccinated, you know, like it it's might be 50th, slow. actually 50th. Yeah. yeah so yeah. super slow. But, you know, when I went to Boise in the fall of 2020, um, it was interesting because Boise had a mask mandate, but everything around Boise did not. And in fact, we were at this hotel and we were hanging out in this hot tub and this lady from California was like, I came to Idaho because I heard that there wasn't a mask mandate. And then I showed up in Boise and they had one. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that's interesting to, to meet someone who purposely traveled to a place because they thought they couldn't wear masks. And I then think you- people moved here for that reason last year. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought that was super interesting. And then, you know, when we, last year, when I did the road trip, we went from Boise to Oregon and then to just to see like leaving Boise, the farther out you got, you know, like my partner stopped in like a target and was like, I was the only one wearing a mask Yeah, (laughs) and coming from Seattle, like we have, you know, our vaccination rates are super high and, you know, we were, we were like case one for the U S for COVID. And, um, so I think we take things a little more seriously because we like, I think there's a little bit of guilt from us. Like, man, we didn't figure this out early enough. And then this whole thing spread across the U S. Um, but I would have to say, so, you know, from KXP standpoint, like we knew what the numbers were and there were people on staff who straight up said, I might not go because the COVID numbers are so high in Idaho right now. Um, but then once we showed up and realizing like, okay, you have to show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test. They were also like giving vaccinations like on site too. Um, and, you know, a lot of the venues, you know, the main stage was outside um, and a lot of people were wearing masks. Um, you know, I, I would say, you know, in some of the bars, I remember going to the Olympian the first night and there was a few people in the audience that weren't wearing masks. Um, but the ma- majority, majority were wearing masks and everyone was super respectful. You know, like I just went to see Dune for the first time um, this past weekend and went to a movie theater. And I have to say, like, I felt very unsafe being in a movie theater crammed next to people, you know, and they're munching on their popcorn than I did seeing live music at Boise, you know, like I I thought that they did a really great job. And also I feel like the crowd, you know, I think they, 
they understand science. And I don't know if this is controversial to say, I don't know why it would be, but you know, they understand science and they're respectful of their community. And if some people are feeling uncomfortable, the rule is in order to have these festivals, we wear masks. Otherwise, I mean, this is what the third time tree fort had to reschedule this festival, you know, and it's like, if you don't follow the rules, we can't have these festivals, you know? And so I think everyone is very understanding and everyone was very excited to see live music. And the fact that it was set in a place where it was sunny outside and you could spend time outside, um, you know, and then just wear your masks indoors. And, and, and for the most part, everyone did. And I felt very safe there. I, I um, had a debrief with all my colleagues that went to Tree Fort afterwards, and they all said something about COVID safety. They're like, I felt incredibly safe there. And that was so refreshing after not seeing live music for so, so long. On Wednesday, that first night, I definitely got way into my head because I went like normally part of the fun is like you were saying to see how many venues you could get to, but I kind of know I'm an insider. And so it's, it's like uh, the stakes are way higher. Cause I can, you know, I, I know the quickest way and all this and that, but um, every time I was in one of those kind of darker, more bar like settings that, that would um, kind of get in my head a little bit as far as um, yeah, is this a good idea? I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, um, it, it was, it was, I had a really good time, but th that first day I was still, questioning whether or not it was a good idea and I'm and they knew what they were talking I'm really happy that um everyone was so respectful that was my takeaway is that I really felt like like you said people understood that um this is going to require different behaviors from everyone um people were still having a good time and and getting a little rowdy but for the most part everyone was really respectful you mentioned the El Cora shrine I wonder what that venue is like you know, it's just a mainstay of, of Tree Fort at this point. But, um, you know, what is it like coming into as, you know, like, what the heck is this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, in the in the 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 guy and I don't know the, the history behind a core shrine. I know it's like some sort of like social community. Right. Maybe, you know, more than I do. And I would love for you to fill in what I well, don't it's know. It's like an Elks Lodge or like a yeah. Mason Center or whatever. Yeah, but but like they've got these outfits that they wear, these like these funny hats. And I don't know how to even describe their outfits. I don't know. Do they wear kilts? I don't know. <laughs> but but they they had like their little uniforms on and they were greeting you at the door. And I was like, what is this society? <laughs> um, and then you go in and you see everyone's like headshots with their funny hats on. And I don't know, again, I don't know the history behind them or what the what the symbolism between but you know behind their their outfits are. But um it was definitely like uh this, you know, society of you know, of folks and you see all their photos when you go in and then you see like the stage, which is awesome. And then downstairs, they've got that fun bar that definitely feels like an Elks Lodge where it's like something like, in you know, that you'd see like in someone's basement or something like that. But yeah, I thought the venue was really cool. I mean, what's, do you know more of the history behind that space? No, I mean, but aside from the fact that it feels like we're, we're being led into something you know, that we haven't been initiated into. Exactly. Yeah. And then it always, it's like, what is this like a weird prom or, you know, like a wedding reception that you're at <laughs> yeah. because of just the, the bunting and the, this, um, the weird neon thing that's kind of hangs down from the stage and stuff, but it, it holds a lot of people. And so it's a great spot that's right, right near that main stage. So it's just seems like a perfect venue for tree fort. Yeah. And then, um, 
I also went to the knitting factory. Um, that was a pretty cool venue. Oh, yeah, it's a little more off the beaten path. And there was another one kind of in that same neighborhood. Um, oh, it, it changes names every now and again. It might be called the Mardi Gras. Did you? Oh, it- yes. Yeah, I went there. So that was that was also kind of a similar feel to Coruscant where it's like, this feels kind of like, <laughs> uh, it, it was like, this the the stage had like a huge dance floor that kind of felt like a skating rink inside (laughs) (laughs) and like you know the carpet was all crazy colors and stuff um but then yeah but then the uh was it what did i just say the knitting knitting factory factory, that was really cool that felt like a club club and i and i talked to one of the organizers late or um, afterwards and you know because of covid they had to really limit the number of people at the festival for safety reasons. And the person who was in charge of, you know, I think maybe booking the knitting factory was like, it was so weird to only have like 70, a hundred people in that venue that can hold, I don't know how many, I mean, there's a whole balcony there. You know, there's a big dance floor, there's a big bar, and then there's a balcony that can hold even more. And she's like, for there to only be a hundred people in that space felt really anticlimactic. I'm sure for the artists, you know, (laughs) to play like some like electronic kind of dance beats. And then to feel like the room is like, you know, for the most part empty, you know? Yeah. I mean, so they, they still, so what I noticed um, is that there was still people in all the venues, but the, you know they were just a lot uh, not as close. Yes. You know, as, so like even at the main stage, you know there was still a, a mass of bodies there, but they weren't as densely packed as like when Charles Bradley played or Sharon Jones played in years past. Yeah, and that that's what I I really liked about Treefort is like to be able to see live music and not to feel like you have to cram next to people in order to get a good view of the band. Like you could stand anywhere and still have a great view and you didn't feel crammed in. And that was intentional. And I was like, man, I wish all fest- festivals were like this. Like, you know, now that I'm in my thirties, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to be able to have a good view and, you know, not be all crammed up next to people. But um that was awesome. The other thing is there was an artist that I saw that I, that I want to make sure that I mentioned who I believe is from Boise and that's street fever. Are you familiar with street fever? A little bit. Yes. So that was at, Oh gosh, let me look up what building without that, that was in, that was at the shredder, <laughs> which yeah. is, uh, and street fever was like, it was like a, it was like a performance. Like the main guy is wearing like an all black and a black mask. So there's like total anonymity. And then he has like two guys come in and like hold these banners for him. And they just hold the banners the whole time with like a straight face while holding like chains in the other hand. And, uh, you know, it's like kind of like, uh, industrial dance music, like something you would feel like you would listen to, like, I don't know, in a basement in Berlin or something like that. Uh, and that performance was really, was really interesting. Cause it was like, so much of it was like just the performance you saw on stage and you were like, man, I don't know if this guy is like super serious or if this is like sort of like a little bit jokey, but he's really into it. And the music was a lot of fun too. Well, so I, years ago I saw Thunder Pussy in that same venue and that felt very theatrical too, but then oh, also yeah. um, Starcrawler and I didn't know if that was real or, you know, a performance thing either, but it was like menacing and really scary. And she was climbing up the stage and, but, um, I, I, 
as far as like another element of tree fort that's probably not necessary um not necessarily something that you would find at other music festivals is so the community really embraces the whole idea of this and they like so a lot of the local artists really go all out for their performance like you were noting with street fever did you recognize any like street dancing or art or weird things it's like what is this oh yeah <laughs> that was also like the best part is like they were like these praying mantises by the main stage that were gosh how tall were they like they were like 20 30 feet tall and and like my partner who's been to burning man was like oh my gosh i love this you know because it's like you know creating these like funny creatures that you know they like do a little dance you can move them around or like the people in between sets that had the little like alien costumes that would like ride around in their you know roller skates and stuff like the aliens like with one big eye or whatever um that was really cool too to have like that that visual art element to it as well so then another thing a lot of the artists that i talked to talk about is the hospitality now since you were a performer did you get to go to the artist's lounge was that part of oh i got invited but i didn't go because like i had credentials but my partner didn't so it felt weird to be like see you later i'm gonna go do this thing by myself (laughs) (laughs) i think if it was like if i could could have you know met up with some other kxp folks and we all did at the same time that would make sense but i just i thought that was a really nice touch i did not i was not able to participate in that because i didn't want to leave my partner behind but um but yeah, I, I thought that was a, a really nice touch, but yeah, I, I didn't I didn't experience it. The other thing, so you have, um, you know, a professional job and you have to get up early and do work. Um, what, the, what about the late nights? Now, as, as I get older, it's harder. So like Delvon Lamar played really <laughs> late on Wednesday night. Yeah. Do you have to train for that or how do you prepare <laughs> for a festival? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have to work I don't have to wake up at 3 a.m. anymore these days again to, to kind of set my schedule. But um, yeah, I generally am an early bird. Like I really wanted to see um, the black tones, but they I think their set started at midnight on like Saturday and we had to leave town on Sunday. So we had to miss that. But also we got the benefit of ha- already having an extra hour ahead coming from Washington because Washington's in the Pacific time zone. So we could stay up later and it didn't feel like an hour later. You know what I mean? Yes. So we came in with that advantage. Um, but yeah, there was definitely some nights where we were like, all right, we got a rally. Like we'll go back to the hotel real quick and like put our feet up, but we got to get back out there again. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, just, I am just as a person, not much of a night owl, but it was, but it was interesting to see how much the music that we wanted to see started at, you know, starting at eight, going until 2 a.m. I, I think we, we wanted to stay out till two, but we just couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, earlier you mentioned that you were a music major and you, you were a singer, um, but then you also got a master's degree in communications. Um, so was that always your plan, you know, to, or, so I'm just curious about your, your music background and how you turned that into your career by becoming a journalist. Oh yeah. So, um, so yeah, I was really into music growing up, you know, I was like in all the theater and the musical theater (laughs) and, and all the choirs and stuff. And, um, 
then I got accepted into music school, you know, my senior year of high school, but I also wrote a very controversial article in the student paper uh, that ended up the administration tried to censor it. And so then we got, you know, this, uh, this lawyer to work for us for free and like, you know, rally the case and ah, anti-censorship. And I was like, Ooh, journalism's a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to get into this, but I'd already gotten accepted into music school. Um, And once I got into music school, I was like, man, this is kind of sucking all the fun out of music because I'm having to like learn how to sing opera, you know, and like learn classical music and learn music theory. And I just got to the point where I felt like every time I was on stage, I was so focused on technique that like the passion of it was gone. Um, I remember telling my parents, I was like, can I switch majors? And they're like, no, like, I was like, I want to switch into journalism. And they were like, no, I mean, you can finish this degree you can still do journalism without having a degree, but at least you'll come out of school having like this extra expertise and something else that a lot of other journalists won't have. Um, and so I finished the degree, but I knew that journalism was, became my new passion. Um, and then I, you know, I worked for, you know, my college radio station, um, for four years in college. And then, um, I started interning at NPR stations and my second internship ended up becoming a job. And so I kind of was on the news end of things, um, you know, reporting on news stories, but also throughout my career, like I was always really passionate about telling stories from musicians, like, you know, when I was working at Michigan radio, which was my first professional, professional job, full-time professional job, you know, I still would always do features on musicians in the area and like have them break down the themes behind their album. And so often they were reflecting on what was happening in our region, like either talking about issues of, of race or issues, you know, things that, that, that we were talking about in our newscasts, but you, you heard from like non-politicians about these things that are impacting their daily lives. And I was like, this is a really cool way to be able to cover the news is through music. And then to have the added bonus of be able to weave these, you know, these songs and music through the stories that you're telling. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I continued to do that until I got my job at KEXP, which like that is now my full-time job is interviewing musicians. And then, you know, you get done with the interview, you edit it, and then you start weaving music through. And then you, you kind of like a composer, like you create this new, you know, finished piece of work. And then people get to talk about, you know, issues facing society and the human condition, you know, through, the songs that they wrote. So, um, that was kind of my path to where I am of like that perfect fusion between like journalism and, and music. Well, the segments are, are not super long. They're usually about 20 minutes long for a sound and vision. And so I'm curious about some of the processes. I noticed like you do have a lot of music that's interwoven through it. Do you have to get permission for all those pieces or if they're, you know, that's a curiosity. And then also when you conduct these interviews, do you do a longer interview and really boil it down to, you know, the kernel, the essence, or are you prepared in such a way that um, you're able to get the perfect 20 minutes, you know, right off the bat? (laughs) Yeah, I try. My aim is to do is to be able to conduct interviews in 30 minutes. Like, so, you know, 
when I get off the call with you, I'm actually going to be interviewing um, Damon Albarn, who was a lead. Yeah, <laughs> he was he was the lead singer of Blur and I'm Gorillas. Right. And I'm yeah. distracting you from getting <laughs> no, in the zone. No, this is fine, but this is an example. So I have 20 minutes with him. Like he's doing a press round where he's talking to a bunch of people back to back, and I've got 20 minutes with him. And so, in general, I try to keep my interviews to 30 minutes and, and going into it, you know, what I've been trained throughout my journalism career is like, go in with a focus. Like, what is the one thing you want people to get out of this interview? And then you end up kind of framing all your questions around that thing. Like I'll be talking to him about his new album. And so, you know, I spent probably two hours yesterday, like listening to the album, like reading everything I could about it. And so trying me trying to figure out what are the overall themes and then to boil those down into like, I don't know, seven, seven questions or something. Um, and so my goal when I go into an interview is to have a very clear focus of what I want to talk about. And usually that is the album itself and to try to bring out what are the album's themes? What does it tell you about, you know, this, this person or the human condition or society, blah, blah. Um, and so I try to really focus my questions. I end up writing some and then taking them out and then, and then ordering them in a way where it kind of creates a story arc. Um, and then when I'm done, um, sometimes the interview will be 30 minutes, sometimes 40 minutes. And then I end up usually for the most part, cutting at least 30 to 50% out of it. Um, where sometimes I asked a question that I thought was a great question, but it went nowhere. And so I cut that out or, you know, sometimes people will go on little tangents within their answer and I'll take out some of those. And so once I'm done with the interview, I one, try to keep the interview itself pretty focused, but then once I finish up, I even, I tighten that up even more. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of sound and vision segments that you hear in the podcast, are usually, yeah, about half as long as what the raw interview was. Um, and then when it comes to weaving in music, so for broadcast, um, KEXP has a license where we are a radio station. We play, we pay a, a, a flat fee to play all the music that we do. And so we can play as much music as we want um, for Sound and Vision. Like, you know, a lot of times for the broadcast, we go out playing a full song by the artist after um, airing the interview. Um, and then, but for podcast, you have to have certain permissions. And so if I want to play something that's more than 30 seconds, that's outside of what we call fair use, we have to go back to the publisher of that song or that album and make sure that they, they have granted us permissions to use that song, uh, because podcast has different rules than what broadcast has. When you're doing bios for people, do you, do you need to write all your own copy or can you read their stuff? And if you read their own stuff, do you have to note that you were, nah. you know, I mean, I think I try to keep things pretty short, like, you know, bios. I don't, I mean, like, gosh, I got this bio for Damon Albarn. That's literally one, two, three. Yeah three and a half pages long. <laughs> and so, you know, like the intro that I'll give for him is uh, two sentences. It's after fronting the, the bands Blur and Gorillas, Damon Albarn is out with a new solo record. It's called The Nearer the Fountain, More Pure the Stream Flows. Damon Albarn joins me now to talk about the project. And then we start in my questions. I'll fill in some of the backstory there so I don't have to do it all in the lead um, or the intro. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think you want to make it as much as yours as possible. Um, they usually, you know, sometimes they give you more information than what you need. But, um, yeah, I mean, definitely 
try to not take things verbatim, but there, I think there was a sentence or two, like when I'm describing the album, like they wrote it so well in the, in the PR sheet, you know, like is this album, here's my first question. This project was originally, um, uh, was supposed to be an orchestral piece inspired by the landscapes of Ireland. Like a lot of that language was taken straight from the PR sheet, you know, but I'm using that information in one of the questions. So, you know, but I'm not, I'm not reading it as if it's a PR sheet, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm curious, like, what kind of information is in front of you? Do you have themes and topics? And or do you actually have scripted questions and you'll bounce around depending on where the interview is going? Yeah, I'll script out a, a set of questions. So usually I'll 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 have my questions. I'll probably put together like eight questions and then order them in a way that I think makes sense. And knowing that if he answers something a certain way, it can bounce down here and, you know, and also leaving room for like, if he says something super interesting, like I can respond to that in real time, but I know what I want out of the interview going into it. And so that's where the questions are. Um, and then, you know, I'll have some, you know, like his, probably his, the lyric sheet for his album next to me. So if he references something, I can riff off of that a little bit. Um, for the most part, I'm going off my questions, but yeah, sometimes I'll have some extra notes of like, he probably will talk about this or reference that. And I'll have, you know, that, that line, you know, whether that be some background story in front of me or a lyric in front of me, just so I can be able to, you know, reference that or whatever. And then something else that I'm curious about is you definitely come out of like a live broadcast background. And so does that definitely, like when you were, when we were talking on email, you were worried about, you know, being compelling for 42 minutes. Um, (laughs) Does your live background, you know, inform that where you need, like, you can't have dead air and it has to always zing to stay current on, on air. Well, I think it's also my background working for a show like morning edition where, um, you know, so when I was a morning edition host, I'm just the person like in between reading like the local newscast or what's coming up next. And then, um, you know, the stations. So for a show like morning edition, which I believe is like the most listened to like news show on radio, uh, I think. (laughs) Um, and it, uh, so for a lot of the pieces, like a really big investigative piece, eight minutes tops for a regular feature, four minutes. Um, and so I really growing up and like doing feature reporting, it all had to be around the four minute zone. Um, and so, I, I, I thought, and, and also the philosophy around morning edition is like, we are here while you are getting ready for work or in the car during your commute, like you're in and out doing other things in your life. And so we need to like take your attention, but also give you a variety of news. So you come, you know, by the time you end up at your desk or wherever it is that you're going, like you have a pretty good understanding of what is happening in the world that day. And so we can't stay on one subject for too long. And so, um, that always kind of stuck in my head of just like, okay, what do we need to know? What's the fastest, most efficient way to tell this story? Um, and then, you know, and so I kind of take a lot of that into how I edit or how I approach interviews. Um, and so I try to try to, yeah, try to, when I ask questions like intentional about how, like, I guess, how do we tell this story in the shortest, most efficient way, but it's still compelling. <laughs> so when I was like, oh no, I got to talk about tree fort for 42 <laughs> minutes. Like, you know, like for my show, I put a, a little tree fort segment together and I think it was like maybe 10 minutes long. Like I gave a little like three minute intro, played a few songs in between and then had a bunch of KEXP staffers. I said, okay, you've got 
90 seconds to tell me your tree fort highlight. And then we kind of, I aired those all back to back with some music weave through because they referenced a lot of music. And that was like my approach. Right. And so I was like, oh no, now I got to do this for 42 minutes. I couldn't do that for my show. So how am I going to do it for your show? <laughs> well, so this, the time is running away from us and we only have a few more minutes, but, um, you've been doing this great series lately. Um, I, I mean, I'd love for you to speak a little bit about your role in sound and vision. You know, you talk about editing, you're definitely the host most of the time, you know, what is your role as producer? What does that mean? But then also I'd love for you to speak a little bit. You're doing this series about women behind the console, you know, and so you're asking all these great gender equality questions about, you know, um, being a woman in these roles that have been, you know, for a long time male, you, could you speak to your own experiences being behind the console too? Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because, um, yes. So this series behind the console, it was inspired because, um, I was hanging out with one of my friends who does audio engineering and, you know, I was talking about just some issues at work and I was like, how do you deal with conflict? Or like when someone doesn't agree with you or someone screwed things up and you just need to tell them like, Hey, you know, meet your deadlines or whatever. And he's like, Oh, at work, I just go up to the next sound guy. And I was like, you've effed it up. You know, you've effed it up. And he's like, and you get in their face and you make him embarrassed. And I was like, whoa, like you work with a bunch of dudes and like you, you can, you probably have your own language, but like there was women in the mix. Like that would be like horrifying. Like I'd feel so embarrassed if someone did that to me, you know? And so realizing like there's a different dynamic in that industry because it's mostly run by dudes who have the flexibility to like be on the road, be away from their families, blah, blah. And so then I was like, man, I wonder how many women are in this field. Cause there was a study that, um, uh, um, the, the USC put out a study, their communication school put out a study where they will look through the Grammy nominees and then look at all the people behind the songs, the songwriters, the producers, um, the engineers. And I think that they found that only 2% of the songs that end up being nominated for Grammys, only two or 3% um, of those songs were engineered by women. Um, and then there's another organization, um, by Carrie Kyes, who actually runs sound, used to run sound for red hot chili peppers now runs sound for, um, Pearl jam. And she now runs uh, organization to kind of mentor women in audio. And on their website, they say that only 5% of women, um, who are in the professional audio field or uh, 5% of those in the professional audio field are women. And so realizing the numbers are really low, um, and so I sent out a tweet of like, Hey, did anyone know of any women audio engineers? And I got a list of like 60 names. <laughs> and, and the truth is, is like, especially with indie music, there's definitely more female representation, but I, I saw a big trend here and wanted to know, like, how do people navigate this? And a lot of it was like, I think my latest podcast, you know, someone talks about like how a lot of her female colleagues, if they um, have a kid, have to hide that fact, because if they say that they did, they'll stop being invited to go on tours because people assume that they can't do it. Or, you know, some of the aggressions they face, you know, just doing their job, you know, being mansplained, things like that. Um, and, and that was really interesting to hear about how that plays out in the live music realm. Um, in, you know, I, I, I am very fortunate in which I didn't really see gender inequities until recently in my career. Like I grew up, you know, going up in my career, you know, I was, I was, 
I felt for a while it was like an advantage to be a woman because I think we had gone through this shift where it was very male dominated. Women are starting to get into this field more. And so the women that are there like, yes, like go do your thing. Like in college radio, my, the director of the radio station, you know, he was a professor at the university and he was very encouraging of me. My first job, you know, the production, uh, or not the production, the program director was a woman. So was the main producer of the show that I was running or that I was a part of. And so all of my leadership was, were women. Um, and then it wasn't until honestly, um, when Trump got elected that I was like, Oh, women are viewed still pretty differently. (laughs) And it took like that for me to really see it. Um, and there's definitely been some things lately in my career where there's times where like, okay, I feel like this is a boys club. Uh, and a lot of women are in supportive roles of men. (laughs) Um, but you know, I would say overall, I, I was encouraged, you know, being a woman in this field and I still feel very, very empowered. And I don't think I face gender inequities nearly as much as what sound engineers do. Um, I don't know if that was the the answer you're looking for, if that's what you're going through in your question, but <laughs> this is that where I ended perfect. up. <laughs> yes. And that was 42 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh yeah, thank you. You bet. You've been listening to Emily Fox in 42 minutes. For more information about sound and vision, visit kexp.org. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast, please be sure and visit the website at thesyncbook.com. If you are interested in preparing for Tree Fort number 10, which happens March 23rd through the 27th, 2022, visit treefortmusicfest.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the Syncbook Radio archives are free, including nine years of past Tree Fort shows. All this and more can be found at syncbook.com. Thanks so much and never more. It's like crossing a road.